Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Hi Cliff, thanks for having me here today. I'm Lisa Kewen. I'm an emergency nurse and of 30 years. I'm a mum, a wife, a dog owner, and my current role is the Associate Professor of Emergency Nursing at Monash University, and I have an honorary position at Monash Health. Great. Thanks for thanks for that intro, and thanks for being able to speak over the jackhammer that's going on in the background. We're, <laughs> we're recording this in a really beautiful recording studio at Monash University, and even though we've got all this soundproofing, we've got this ridiculously noisy jackhammer right above us. Anyway, apologies, apologies to everyone in advance. Yeah, exactly. Hey, um, I remember not too long ago, um, we tended to operate under the perception that um, premenopausal women. Uh, didn't get coronary artery disease. We just thought they were immune until uh, they reached a change of life and then they were up for the same sort of risk as the rest of the male population, Um, but not the case. So um, can we start by talking a little bit about where this came from um, and the early cardiovascular healthcare gender inequities for women and disadvantaged people? Yeah, uh, look, this is a It's a really interesting case and it comes from a whole lot of unconscious biases, I think, in society. And it wasn't until the very late 70s when the first of the Framingham studies came out by Cannell that we realised that heart attacks were even a problem for women at all. Even though we probably knew statistically it was our number one killer, we just didn't think of it in in relation to women. We always thought of the man's heart attack, the Hollywood heart attack, grabbing his chest, falling to the floor, sweaty, clammy, crushing chest pain, and the family would call the ambulance and they would all drop all tools, drop whatever they were doing and race off to the emergency department, and he would get treated very, very quickly. Women, on the other hand, often have, they do tend to have chest pain, but the chest pain is different and somewhat less dramatic, Mm. and it happens over a longer period of time than men. Partly because of this, and partly because there was, and still is, a gender bias in terms of uh, research, and then clinically assessment, management, and follow-up, we we didn't really know what the case was with women. So we assumed that if a woman had a heart problem, it was okay just to treat her like a slightly smaller man. That wasn't the case, that isn't the case. And we also thought that she was largely protected by estrogen until she reached the menopause. And then six to eight years afterwards, her risk caught up with with men's. Now what we know is that premenopausally women have terrible heart attacks much with much worse outcomes in many ways than men. They're about half as, compared to men, they're about half as likely to reach the hospital alive, about half as likely to leave the hospital alive, and then half as likely as men to be alive in 12 months' time as men. So these are premenopausal women. There are less of them, but it is a very deadly disease when they have ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, which is the most acute type of heart attack. Postmenopausally, even though we still think that men's heart attacks are worse, and they are worse in the short term, more women die of the atherosclerotic heart disease. And it's, you know, the... um, the syndromes that follow than men do each year in Australia. So there's about 20,000 deaths each year in Australia from heart disease, and just more than, slightly more than half of those are in women. 
Wow. So um, are you seeing um, a bit of a change in people's practice in terms of uh, their alertness to uh, women complaining of chest pain or even, you know, very silent sort of indicators of, of STEMI or non-STEMI? Yeah, I think, so I started studying this in 2008 when I started doing my PhD. And in the very early days, everybody would disagree with me that there was a difference between men, men's and women's heart disease or how it should be treated or how it might present. And even when I had statewide Victorian data that would actually tell me what triage score, for instance, women got in comparison to men when they presented with chest pain or with actual heart attack, triage nurses would say, most of them would say, that doesn't happen here or I don't do that. I couldn't tell whether or not they did do that, but I certainly knew that it happened in those emergency departments. I think that's a lot less common now and certainly out there in the general community and in women themselves, they do see that heart disease is a bigger risk. So it's, you know, it's much more likely to happen and they, so it has got some traction, the message in the last few years. There are a lot of people who still don't like what they call the narrative, that there are differences in the treatment um, that women patients receive when they have acute coronary syndromes, which are heart attacks and unstable angina. But most people, I think, can see in the evidence that there is in fact still a bias, although it's certainly less obvious than it was um, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So that, that actually feels a little bit like um, translation to practice. It feels like your work has translated over to practice. And um, I'm going to sort of speculate a little bit here. I know we don't like to do, do that in research, but um, it feels like that's probably come about from our teaching of nurses and doctors and um, that kind of co unconscious bias that you have when you're sitting at the triage desk is starting to, to uh, dissipate a little. What do you reckon? I think it is. And it's certainly something that a lot of people reach out to me about through my university email addresses. And a, a couple of years ago, I, um, I was fortunate to get some media attention. And then I had a lot of patients come out of the woodwork who would have normally not had access to the scientific papers that I was involved in writing and, and that were in fact um, part of my PhD research. But a whole lot of people have come forward and want to talk to me about it. It's very unusual now for me to go into an emergency department or a coronary care unit or a cath lab and somebody doesn't want to talk to me about women's heart disease. Uh, so I think the message is out there. As far as other vulnerable groups go, and I'm thinking of people of... Um, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and people who have severe, severe mental illness, I think we're still a long way off with reducing some of the disparities there, which are largely due to our unconscious bias. So if a woman happens to be um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, if she happens to be Indigenous, or if she happens to have severe mental illness, I think that her risk both of having severe heart disease, but also it not being recognized in time to do anything about it or to do much about it before the heart is irreparably damaged or she dies, I think there's still tremendous delay and tremendous problems there. And it's something that I'm really interested in looking at. So, so it sounds like you've actually got quite a bit more work to do Oh, I've got a lot of work in this to do. area. What, yep. what, what are you What are you going to do next? What am I going to do next? Well, part of what I want to look at. So my my current role, um, which I've been doing for close to three years now, is as I said earlier, it's the associate professor of emergency nursing at Monash University. And part of my brief when I came over um, from another university, which was also a terrific university, was to work with people working in emergency departments at Monash Health, and there's three emergency departments there. There's Monash Medical Centre Clayton, Dandenong and Casey. And the idea was that I would help lead research. And one of the reasons I think that 
I was approached about the, the particular job um, and certainly went through a rigorous interview process was because my I'm one of the few people who has an emergency background who has specialised in cardiac. Mm. And at that stage, there were lots of rumblings, sometimes picking, sometimes, you know, just disappearing altogether about this new Victorian Heart Hospital because it wasn't yet signed up, it, you know, it wasn't yet agreed on between any of the um, the three major institutions, Monash Health, Monash University and the Victorian State Government. So we didn't really know whether that was going ahead. So the idea was that I would be on the ground and running with my research at Monash Health and at Monash University by the time that got up and going. So what I'm doing at the moment is developing some research that looks at the, the junction, if you like, between emergency care and cardiac care to try and improve outcomes of people when they come into emergency, particularly women, but I will also be looking more at um, people with the culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and people with mental health issues um, and various people to try and improve the care when they get to the catheter lab because we know that heart disease is one of the very few diseases that we know a lot about and we know that everything we do is time sensitive. And that's what we do as emergency clinicians. Everything we do is time sensitive. So if I can make more people aware of that and reduce some of the, the, the blockages, the barriers to getting women, men, other, through to the cath lab faster and the balloon blown up faster, then we're going to save a lot of hearts and a lot of lives. Yeah, right. That, that, that's awesome. That, do you mind if we move in a slightly different direction? Not at all. All right. So um, you've done a lot of work in the past around opioid overdose interventions, family violence screening and responses to those, and more recently, the emergency care community's response to COVID, right? Mm -hmm. um, at, at the time of recording this podcast, there's likely a fair bit of interplay between um, these problems. How do you think about substance abuse and family violence in the in the time of, uh, of, of COVID-19? Uh, I think that uh, family violence, substance misuse, a whole lot of the social ills that affect most Western societies, um, I think they're going to be much worse at the moment when people are increasingly stressed, anxious, isolated, depression is higher. More people have lost their jobs and have got more downtime at home. Self-esteem, self-worth is much lower. There's also a lot more people trapped in houses together, which doesn't matter to some of us and some parts of the community. But if there are vulnerable people living with people who perpetuate um, violence, then I think that they're really at risk. And I think that they are more at risk because there's a whole lot of anxiety, depression, self-esteem issues, anger issues over situations that people can't control. I think that most people, if they're informed, if they've got control over their own well-being, their own welfare, their own finances and lives, are capable of being very reasonable people most of the time. I think if you add substance misuse, unemployment, and the stress that is just everywhere at the moment, it's like a miasma around us. I think that there are a, a lot of issues that we're not yet to see. And I think that they're also the case for cardiovascular disease, for the heart disease I look at. For all of these things, people aren't seeking the assistance that they need at the appropriate time. So we're going to see more heart attacks. There's more out of hospital cardiac arrests at the moment, for instance. We're going to see spikes in substance misuse, opioid misuse, and probably fatal overdoses. We know we're seeing more family violence. 
I'm working with, um, as you alluded to, with the social workers and the emergency department at, at Monash Health, and we're developing some work in that space. And I'm involved in the task force on um, strengthening hospital response to family violence. And I think it might be the third or even the fourth wave, but I think that the, everything is going to conspire to cause a lot of problems for some members of the community. Yeah. And um, I guess what it means to us in the emergency department is that we really need to raise our radar a little. You know, um, we're constantly on the lookout for uh, any evidence or any indications of family violence, of of, uh, substance abuse. But I think it feels to me like um, we need to just raise that bar a little. Yeah, I think we need to have a very heightened awareness of people's vulnerabilities and the dangers that people face within their own home or within their own selves because of the um, addiction issues. Um, And I think you're right. I think we have to um, have suspicions. I think we should have suspicions all the time anyway, but I think we should be even more alert to that um, in for women and men who are subject to intimate partner and family and domestic violence, as well as elder abuse, and also for children, which is a form of um, family violence as well. And I think that there there will be a lot of tensions that we in the emergency department may in fact be the only ones um, with the healthcare professionals that these people are able to reach out to. And I think that the onus is on us to to start screening and responding, which doesn't mean in emergency we can respond to every problem that society has, but we should have processes in place that we can call on the appropriate people, whether that's social work, whether that's the um, crisis units for sexual assault, um, the mental health experts, Whoever it should be, we we need to be more aware of it than ever, and we need to call in those people, and and not let those um, those individuals like you know um, slip through the cracks, which is the real risk. Yeah, and um, quite often I used to depend a lot on what uh, my own life brought to the emergency department. So I would always think about people who. Um, were having a rough time, where their income wasn't as good as it could be, those sorts of things, and thought back to when I didn't have a cracker mm-hmm. and how that affected you and how it affected your mood and how it affected when you went to see somebody in something like an emergency department or a bank or wherever it might be. So if we can use that sort of empathy as well, mm-hmm. we can really get a good look at it from the person's point of view, and um, I, I think that can help. Now, you mentioned their um, elder abuse, mm. so I wonder if we could move slightly on to there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it might be a little late, but over the last seven to eight years, the ED have been making some really encouraging encouraging moves about how we manage older people in the ED, in particular the use of mechanical and chemical restraint. Mm. Um you're about to start some pretty interesting work in, in this area um, with some very different collaborators around mm. uh, media-based distraction techniques to, to reduce the use of, uh, of these sort of restraint techniques in the elderly or for elderly patients um, who, who are in the emergency department in particular. In so much as you're able, um, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about this piece of work? Yeah, look, it's a fabulous piece of work and it's being led by Uh, Dr. Gabby or Gabrielle Bletcher, who works at Monash Health with me and also at Cabrini, where he is a a, a part-time emergency physician. He came to me about 18 months ago with this idea and we spent some time developing it, looking for funding. And then we were very, very fortunate to get some funding from these wonderful sponsors through Cabrini Health. It's a couple who I've met and they're absolutely delightful and they just want to see good things done with their money. And 
they've funded us to look at a range of distraction techniques, which will include things like um, virtual reality, close proximity TV, music, things like that, in order to distract elderly people with acute behavioural disturbance, so ABD or um, often early dementia or delirium, when they come into an emergency department, when you know they might have been functioning okay at home or in their aged care facility. You put a urinary tract infection or a chest infection or just the, the lights and noises and the hustle and bustle and the getting in and out of the ambulance to get into the emergency department um, onto what they're experiencing. And then we come in and we might want to give them oxygen, put in a catheter, take some blood. They've got no control over themselves. They don't know what's going on. There are always a myriad of noises um, and kerfuffles and yelling and, you know, things screeching, people screeching too sometimes um, in an emergency department. It's really confusing and stressful for them. So unfortunately, um, despite it not being considered to be best practice, we tend to reach for the drugs, to um, psychotropic drugs, that is, sedative drugs often, to actually calm these people down. It's easy, right? It's easy, it's fast, it is generally effective. The problem with them is that they're associated with more falls, more confusion, higher mortality, longer lengths of stay in both the emergency department and the hospital. But in the short term, it will stop a person from falling out of their bed or punching the nurse or doctor in the mouth or, you know, spitting in their face, um, you know, and it will look like it's a more dignified way of managing them when in actual fact for somebody to lose control over their own body and their mind probably isn't the most dignified um, response. But it is something that we, we do with the best, best of intentions to try and keep them safe. At the extreme, we use physical restraints and that might be to stop people from pulling out their therapies like intravenous fluids, for instance, that they might really need. It might be to stop them from jumping over the side of the trolley and, and fracturing a, a neck of femur or a knoff or a hip or, you know, or just to help calm them down. Of course, if you tie somebody down, mechanically restrain them, it doesn't really calm anybody down. So those people will often end up with chemical as well as physical restraint. So what we're seeking to do is to offer an alternative to that when people first come into the emergency department, when they're still amenable to distraction. We, we're at a proof of concept sort of stage where we're developing this really great work between Cabrini Health and the emergency department there um, and Monash University's Arts Design and Architecture Centre, so MADA or in the Health Collab team, which is um, run by uh, Daphne Flynn. And we're working with this wonderful chap called Rowan White. And we're currently developing the hardware and searching for the software, the media, software media that we can use to actually start um, testing in these people. And we're going to test it in three stages. First, to go into, and we're going through ethics at the moment. Ethics has been um, difficult because we've coincided with COVID, of course, as is all research. So it's been on hold, but we're still working away getting what we can together in the background. So we're going to start off with well elderly people, find out what they like, what they respond to, how stressful it is, putting the virtual reality on, things like that. Which media they like and which they find the most calming and what is it about them? You know, are they male? Are they female? Are they older? Did they grow up in the country, in the city? You know, there's all those sorts of things that we're going to look at. And then we're going to go into an aged care facility. And Cabrini's got a wonderful aged care facility that we'll be working with. And they're really open to this type of work. And MADA, so Monash Arts Design and Architecture people, are in there with another study as well. But we can't, of course, in the time of COVID, get into the aged care facility at the moment. So when COVID passes 
or when we get vaccinations or when the community numbers go back down again, we will, taking infection control into full consideration, go into the aged care facility and start working with elderly people who are supported and living in what is their home, their residential environment, and start developing um, more of a nuanced sense of what we can do with elderly people to actually help calm them down, what they like, what they don't like, how long they'll tolerate things for, whether things can be touching their face, whether music's too loud, too soft, whatever. And then the third stage, which is still really a proof of concept, a development stage, will be going into Cabrini Emergency Department. And thanks to um, some wonderful sponsors of Cabrini, there's a, a large area of the emergency department there that is no longer used. So we'll be using that space to start testing um, this, these distraction techniques on community in there first and, and elderly people in there, and then on elderly patients to see whether or not we can get it to work. So we're really excited about it. We're um, embarrassed and a bit anxious because the sponsors have entrusted us with no small sum of money to get this going. And we've managed to um, you know, develop a pandemic at the same time. But I really think, I really believe in this project the guys that I'm working with at MARTA, at, um, at Cabrini, you know, and the, the Emerge people and the Cabrini people that we've been working with and Phil Russo, who's the, who you've already spoken to, who's the director of their nursing research there, is also involved in this. So we're really, um, we're really into it and really looking forward to it. It's certainly a, a change in what I normally do. Yes, and so, so you should be excited. I'm getting excited just sitting here listening to you <laughs> talk about it. And even if you were to reduce the mechanical restraint in one in 10 people, I, I, I just see that as a, a, a massive win. That's so, right. The quality of life and the just the improved dignity, I think, would be worth it. If it was one in 100 people, it would still be worth it if that um, elderly person happened to be, you know, your mother, your father, your uncle, your grandparent, that's going to be worth it. Yeah, right. And we, we always talk uh, over the last few decades, we've always talked about, you know, is that the way you'd want your mum treated? Yeah. And that, that's that's kind of the way I think most of us view looking yep. after older persons or yeah. older adults. And I think that's the way, and all of my research, as you will notice, is about people who are potentially vulnerable, vulnerable members of the community and vulnerable to um, inequity in care and in therefore their healthcare outcomes that come in through an emergency department. So yeah, so it, it's all tying together really nicely. I'm going to throw a little thing at you that I hadn't signaled to you, um, and it's around the word vulnerable, vulnerable mm -hmm. people, vulnerable populations. Yep. So w w we see this getting bantered around and thrown around everywhere. What, what's your view on that? What do you think? Is, there, is, it, is it okay to call people vulnerable? A lot of people don't like it. The same with um, one of our papers was published um, very late last year in a, in a journal called Addiction. And I work with the Monash Addiction Research Centre people, the MARC people, on, who are just brilliant at all of the opioid um, risk reduction work that we're doing. So, some words aren't politically correct. And it's not fair to categorise people. And I understand that in the same at the same time, it is a way of drawing attention to the inequities that happen and the biases. And I guess I'm mostly concerned about the unconscious biases. Most of us, when we're nurses, doctors, taxi drivers, accountants, whatever we do, don't think about our biases and don't think about categorizing people. But I think as a healthcare professional, the onus is on me to 
empathise with people and to call out if they don't receive the care they should or, at their, or if they're increasingly at risk of not receiving the care that they should. So I have no problems at all about talking about vulnerable populations. That doesn't mean that they as a person are vulnerable in every sense of the word. That means that for me as an eMERGE and cardiac researcher, clinician, I have to be more aware that that person is vulnerable to receiving less appropriate and guideline-based care, evidence-based care, than are some other people in the population. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that's a re great response. Lisa, do you, do you mind if we move on to a slightly different topic? So um, I was talking to a colleague uh, of ours, Julie mm -hmm. Considan, the other day, um, and like her, you did your emergency postgrad at Preston and Northcote Community Hospital. We used to call it Panch Panels because I grew up around there, so oh. like, as in like a panel beaters for yep. people. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. And um, we had the Bell Street bus used to pull up at the front yeah. many times a day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I was telling Julie that I applied to do my postgrad there in the early 90s. It was about 91, 92, mm -hmm. thereabouts. And, and I did my course in 92 yeah. and Julie did hers in 93. Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I got knocked back. Mm -hmm. I got knocked back and I went into, uh, had the worst interview of my whole life. But anyway, I won't get into that. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> and I'm sorry I, to hear that. I don't blame you, Lisa. Look, if you had anything to do, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, um, I was still um, a very young registered nurse at that time. Yeah. And, and look, over the years, I've also seen um, many a new grad put ED down as their preference mm. for um, doing one of, one or more of rotations in their in their postgrad, oh, sorry, in their grad year, GYP rotations and, mm -hmm. and also get knocked back because everybody wants to do it. Everybody wants to go to ED. Everybody wants to look after peds. So, yep. you know, they're, they're the big ones that people put down as mm -hmm. their preferences. What would you say to those of us who've been knocked back about three barrels here, three barrel question. Okay, you might have to remind <laughs> I me will, about each I will, one don't as we worry. go. Yep. Getting your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, keeping ourselves operational and um, current, mm -hmm. so with, with current practice. Uh, but probably most importantly, how we can keep ourselves from becoming ground down by the job. Mm. Really good questions. First of all, the foot in the door. And I'm sorry that we knocked you back at Panch. <laughs> you also proved us wrong. So when I say us, I was like third year out at that time. I think that you and I finished our the uni-based courses at about the same about year. About the same time. Yeah, yeah, I finished in 1989, yep. and which does um, carbon date me for the audience. And the trick is to keep going. Believe in yourself. But most importantly, you want people in your corner. You want people to know you exist. I've been doing some clinical labs here at Monash University with undergraduate students in both first and third year over the last month or so as um, catch-up intensive classes for the undergrads. And many of them have come over because I say who I am and what I do and want to talk to me about emergency afterwards. I give every one of those people my card and encouragement and tell them that it is a great special to be in, specialty to be in, and they can do anything they want with it. If you can survive a shift in an emergency department, you can look after pretty well anything that comes in. Now, the trick is to make contacts. So I say to those people, I might not remember your name, but if you say to me, I am so-and-so in an email, I came up to you after this particular lab and we talked about talking further about emergency nursing. I will remember you and we can take it from there. The other thing is to let the educators and the nurse unit manager of the department you want to target, even if you don't get a graduate there, you might target it soon afterwards and let them know that you're interested. If you can find a person who's, uh, who can put your face and your name to somebody who wants to succeed and wants to specialise in emergency nursing, 
and you are intelligent and you are personable and you are organized, you will get in eventually. So keep going. Don't worry about the grad year. The grad year is great. I did emerge from my grad year and I've never left it since. So I was really, really lucky. And yes, it's either eMERGE or PEDS at the moment. The nice thing about the emergency departments I've worked in is there's always 20% PEDS. Question number two was what? Yeah, so um, that was about um, keeping ourselves kind of current and operational. I know during um, the middle of my emergency nursing career, I started to worry that I was just depending on stuff that I knew from my postgrad or whatever, and I wasn't maintaining that currency of what's next, what's new. Mm. I think to have regular contact with clinicians, with patients, to read fervently, to stay up to date with the science, to be involved with your professional organisations. And Cliff, you and I are both involved with the College of Emergency Nursing Australasia, and we both publish in emergency nursing journals, as well as other journals. And I think to keep conversing with it really does help, as far as that goes. Yes, there are things that change, but there are also a lot of skills that we have through sheer experience and sometimes having learned the hard way and made mistakes along the way that other people cannot replace. And we can't be brilliant at everything. And when we move over to research or academia, as you and I have, that's a really hard slog as well. So I think we have to concentrate on that and we have to respect that the, the clinical nurse specialists, the nurse practitioners, the ANUMs, associate nurse unit managers, sorry, the clinical educators, they are amazing and they're doing an amazing job. And I can't walk in and replace those like I could, you know, a decade ago. And I'm comfortable with that. I have very regular meetings with many clinical nurse specialists and ANUMs and help them through some aspects of their care that they, um, that they need help with because they're living it. They're right up close and I'm looking at it from a different perspective. So I think it's just a matter of respecting that all of us do a different job and it, nothing is less valuable than the other. You want a great clinician looking after you, but you want everything that they're doing to be based in great evidence, really well-founded scientific evidence that is rigorous, that is current, that is, you know, available to them. And I think that that's what you and I do as emergency researchers. Yeah, right. And so, and so the last little bit of that was throughout um, my emergency career, I always kept in the back of my mind that if I was starting to get worn down or burnt out or probably not burnt out, but starting to recognize in myself things that I saw in my colleagues that I didn't approve of, mm. that I would take time off. I would take time out. I would, and I have done, I've gone off and done all sorts of different mm. things over the years. Um, what sort of things have you got to say to people to keep themselves healthy and well and uh, and as empath empathic and uh, as engaged with the role as they can? That's a really good question. And my master's, while it was a tiny project, was about nurse-patient relationships in the emergency department setting. It was a qualitative study. I interviewed a number of senior nurses and, um, and used qualitative, ex qualitative exploratory descriptive research to work with them. So that's all about um, what people say, what they know, what their experience yeah. is and what their thoughts and perceptions are. Yeah, yep. it's, it's sort of getting into their heads a little bit yep. and really letting them speak without judgment. That's the, that's the plan anyway. I was slightly mortified with some of those interviews at the time because I thought that people were going to talk to me about how they connected with patients, how they liked caring for them, how they were able to empathise and maybe even sympathise with patients in, in whatever situation they happen to be in. Most of the people, if not all of them, 
wanted to spend a lot of time talking to me about why they didn't like patients and the disconnect and the futility that they found caring with um, looking after, I wouldn't say caring, but providing emergency nursing care for some patient groups. And it, I was really dis, disheartened at the time. And then I went away and had my first child and came back and looked at it differently. Those people were all still working full time and had for many, many years in an area that like yourself, I had come and gone from and taken breaks or moved out into education. So I wasn't the one being punched or spat out or yelled at or shirt fronted on my way through or, you know, um, glass broken at the triage window in front of me and things like that when people are trying to get through to me. And I actually had, when I thought about it afterwards, so much respect for those people because they had stayed and they were still doing it. I would say though that they probably, and we as nurses, doctors, any sort of clinician, we need to be aware of when we become jaded with the role and we need to take some time to ourselves. And I don't think that working full time in an emergency department is even possible without it grinding people down to some extent. So they have to have other ways, other mechanisms of looking after their own mental health, their own physical health, health and their own well-being. And I think that that is really important. Hats off to every emergency clinician, whether they be a nurse, doctor, pharmacist, social worker, mental health um, practitioner, you know, um, who are working in emergency departments at the moment. It is hard. It was very hard when we started almost 30 years ago. It's even harder now. And the constant drive, the constant, you know, this four hour rule and the, meet, the need to meet KPIs when you're standing with people, standing alongside people, helping them through what is probably the worst day in many of their lives is a privilege. And it's also something that is very hard to reconcile with a KPI of just getting them through quickly. Yeah. And that, that's, that's something that stuck with me for a very long time. Early in my career, um, I came onto an afternoon shift and I'd only been working at triage for a very short time. And I was starting to adopt some of the practices and sayings and phrases mm. that other triage nurses, a lot older and a lot more experienced than I was. And I walked in and I bumped into a colleague um, in the change room and um, I said to him, what's the waiting room like? Is there plenty of rubbish out there? <laughs> now, I am so mortified to even think that I said that back then. And he said to me, you know, there's no rubbish. Everybody who's in that waiting room truly needs to be there in their mind. Nobody woke up that morning and said, hey, I know what I'll do today. I'll sit in a waiting room for eight hours while mm. people ignore me. So, mm. yeah, look, I think I think you're right. And I, 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 I really love your answer there. I think that's really good advice to everybody. And I think that's the way I see it and with what you've said. And we've all had those moments where we've, um, we've let down our own guard and we've succumbed to the stress and the anxiety and the drama of the situation. But with what you have said required reflection, it also required a staff member who you obviously respected to pull you up and to say, no, I don't think that's the case. And for you to go away and think about that. And I think that that's what I do as well as part of my practice, I probably over empathize and oversee myself into other people's situations. And I think my kids do that as well. And I'm not sure that that's healthy, but because I'm not doing it every day, I think it's perfectly healthy. And I think that the results that I get when I'm talking to patients or to other staff um, shows that a little bit of empathy and a little bit of remembering that this is probably 
a really bad time for them, even if it's not for us, goes a very long way. Something that I've often, um, there's, there's two things that I think about when I think about, you know, the people's reactions when they, um, when they come into an emergency. One is the patient who has come in who's taken a heroin overdose. And often the um, antipathy towards those people this particular group of patients can be very, very high and people are very angry about it. And all I can say, and I've always said it to my students, and as you know, I was a postgraduate um, lecturer and coordinator of courses for a long time, is that could be you, that could be your brother, your sister, they've still got a mum or a dad or a sister or a brother or kids who care about them. We owe them the chance to come in, receive safe effective, compassionate healthcare and let them go back out there and be healed and become part of their community again. The other one that I remember, the other thing that I've often told students is we are in such fortunate and privileged positions to know so much about health. We forget what, we, what we've learned. We, we know so much about it and that's not being a smart aleck. We, we do. We've lived and breathed this now. Um, Cliff for what 34 years by the, from when we started our undergraduate degrees and I think about an elderly couple who came in and the elderly wife had knocked the top off a venous ulcer on her lower leg. She had bled slowly for days and they were really stressed when they came in. They didn't know what to do. She was pale and had a tachycardia and she came to me in a non-urgent area of the emergency department I was in. I opened up a bit of gauze, put a tissue over the back of it and poked it in the hole and held her leg up and popped it up on a pillow. And I said to her and her, this lady and her husband, I said, oh, there you go, that's fixed. And they just started laughing. They couldn't believe that they hadn't actually thought to stem the bleeding and they just thought it would eventually stop and by that stage she wasn't critical but she was quite unwell. She was an elderly lady who had lots of comorbidities and she'd been slowly, very slowly bleeding out. And I thought at that time and I've said to many, many students since how fortunate we are that when something happens we just know what to do about it. And my own kids have grown up with the, the mantra. My husband was an eMERGE um, registrar when we met. He's now in another area of medicine. But if we don't see bone, you're fine. And they just, they know when not to react now and they know that we're not going to react. Um, we'll do everything we can to prevent harm, but sometimes it's going to happen. Most of it can be fixed. And we're just very, very lucky to do what we do. And I feel like that all the time. Yeah, and we, we, need, we do need to constantly remind ourselves that people, um, when we, so, so the example that always comes to my head is you take a cannula out and you say, hold your finger on there nice and tight for about four minutes. Mm. And, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll take their hand off after uh, mm. a, a few seconds and then they'll come out and say, oh, it's bleeding. Mm. And... Uh, <laughs> That's you, true. Yeah, yeah. And um, w w what I need to remind myself is, is that I didn't make that message clear enough. Mm. Um, or I need why? To, exactly. I need to. I need to amp up the explanation to look. I've seen this happen many, many times. If you don't hold it on there for four minutes, you'll bleed all over the place. Mm. Not that it makes a big difference in terms of blood or mess or whatever, but it's quite distressing for mm. somebody who's a non-medical um, person to have blood all over the place. So yeah, so just getting that message and trying to remember how much we know mm. as you know, uh, and trying to get the important parts. You know, it's all that's all about health literacy. Mm. Hey, Lisa, we're going to finish up in a minute, but I've got one last question, and it's pretty big. <laughs> so, okay. and I'll probably actually stop asking this soon of the people who the guests who come on the show, because I think we're starting to reach saturation. You know, we're starting to not hear any new things, but maybe we will hear something new from you. So, 
If you were to wake up tomorrow mm-hmm. and broadly the state of emergency care was perfect, what would that look like to you? What would that look like? That would look like anybody who needs to, who feels that they need to for any physical, mental, social situation can come into the emergency department, can experience compassionate, intelligent, evidence-based care from everybody they come across, to not be exposed to COVID or anything (laughs) else at the moment in doing so, and for us to be able to provide emergency care as we know we should with a human being in mind, and to have enough throughput so we don't have the exit block that we've been dealing with for the 30 years that I know of, where we just have patients in emergency departments for days often. And and that unfortunately means that we can't then get other people in who've come in through the waiting room and into the appropriate place. We're stressed, they're stressed, everything's delayed. For me, a perfect world would be no barriers at the other end to getting those people who need to come in in and cared for in the wards where they should be cared for and people who come in with their undifferentiated diseases, illnesses, syndromes, problems, whatever you want to call it, have them differentiated, sorted out and cared for in a really nice thorough way every time they come in would be absolutely perfect. And maybe with some kind of multimedia distraction technique. Maybe. <laughs> hey, Lisa, it's been excellent talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on This Emergency Life. And I don't think we're finished talking to you. I think we're going to have to get you back in the months to come um, yep. to get some updates. We don't know how COVID's going to go over the next few months, um, but it's not looking great in Victoria now. We've had no. a bit of a bump, but it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's a really terrific experience and I love what you and John Thompson are doing. Good on you, John. Keep it going. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. <laughs>